I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Hey, welcome back for another episode, folks. I am excited that you are here with us, and it is Christmas. As you are listening to this uh, to this episode, we are in the Christmas season when it's when it's airing. Actually, recording it before we go on Christmas break here, but uh, we finally made it. And if you're watching this on YouTube, we've got a YouTube channel now. You can go check it out. You will see that the tinsel is strewn, uh, the tree is trimmed, and uh, the studio is looking great here. So we've we've got a topic today as we're coming up on uh, another legislative session beginning on, on January 11th in South Dakota, wanted to return to a topic that I know has just been on a, a lot of people's minds in the last year or so. We did a, um, a podcast on vaccines. What was back in August or maybe September? Um, we're going to return to that topic again, just because I know it's sort of front of mind for a lot of people. As we launch into this, I just want to, you know, we got to preface it by saying this is complex. It's nuanced. Um, we're going to do the Catholic faith here. We're going to do principles of faith. We're maybe going to talk a little bit about civil law. But, you know, let's just, we can acknowledge, um, you know, in society that there's there's just a lot of, like, contentiousness and emotions are raw. And that's that's okay. But we're going to do our very, very best here to just give a, a really honest, candid, and faithful presentation of some of the principles of the Catholic faith that— um, that are applicable to when we're talking about, um, you know, what are what are vaccines and and uh, public policy concerning uh, vaccines in the public square. So joining me today is our previous guest, Cameo Anders. Cameo works for the Catholic Foundation uh, for Eastern South Dakota as um, helping out with a lot of gift planning. She's also got some really great expertise, a master's in theology, a, a bioethics certificate from the National Catholic Bioethics Center, um, and is a licensed lawyer in uh, South Dakota. Also joining us today is uh, Dr. John DiCamillo. He is a staff ethicist at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Welcome, Cameo, and welcome, John. Thanks, Chris. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. Well, as we start this start this topic, um, uh, John, just wanted to maybe start with you is, you know, whenever we're talking about something that that needs some complexity and nuance, it's helpful to define our terms. So let's just start with what is a vaccine? Can we define that? Yeah, sure. So without giving a, an extremely technical scientific definition, the basic idea of a vaccine is that it's a preventive intervention uh, that is intended to essentially expose the immune system of the individual who receives it uh, to an antigen, some part of the virus uh, that you are trying to protect again or against or bacterium or whatever it may be. Um, you're trying to expose the immune system in advance before the person actually gets infected or sick with that particular virus or, um, or other pathogen. Uh, and in order to enable that immune system to learn uh, to recognize the pathogen before it's exposed to the full thing uh, and therefore to be able to respond quicker and hopefully more effectively um, with less severe disease and to ideally prevent transmission uh, of that particular uh, pathogen as well. So it's going to it's going to keep me from getting sick. It's going to keep me from spreading it to to others. What is, you know, and I think this is maybe commonplace, but let's just say it. What, what does the Catholic tradition have to say about vaccines, generally speaking? 
Yeah, generally speaking, the Catholic Church, as with all medical interventions that uh, uh, have demonstrated effectiveness and have been uh, demonstrated safe, the Church has very much uh, supported any kind of medical intervention like vaccines um, over the course of the past several centuries, going back to the early inoculations, uh, that can be helpful for preventing uh, serious disease or preventing the spread of disease and uh, improving uh, health. Well, and, and we're going to get into kind of uh, moral duties uh, too, but it's, I think it is, you know, it's just important to note that, yeah, ge- generally as a general matter, like, yeah, the Catholic Church supports these as, as a public health, you know, they're good for us. They, they help keep us healthy and it's, it's, a, it's good to preserve health. You know, one of the things that's come up in the, in the discussion in the last year, uh, John, and it's something that some Catholics have been aware of in the past, but I think has been uh, more to the forefront just as part of the public conversation in the last year, especially in Catholic and Christian uh, circles. But there's been a lot of discussion about um, links to these abortion-connected cell lines for the vaccines, particularly the ones that are available in the United States. Um, Can you recap for us, what does the church teach about medical procedures or or, um, interventions, including vaccination, that, that bear... Uh, some connection to these ethically concerning cell lines? Sure. So basically going back almost a couple of decades now, um, the Pontifical Academy for Life in 2005 uh, put out some basic guidance about uh, the use of biological um, material of illicit origin. In other words, any kind of medical intervention or, or product that was developed through the use of a cell line that may have been uh, derived from an abortion. So that basic guidance uh, was, and then was reaffirmed in 2008 by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the basic guidance was that as a general rule, there's a moral duty to avoid the use of these uh, biological materials of illicit origin and products that have been created with them, um, like vaccines or medications that were are created through the use of these uh, problematic cell lines. Um, but that uh, with a sufficiently serious reason, with a grave reason um, and a lack of better alternatives and with appropriate protest to the uh, underlying abortions and the problematic use of those cell lines by the pharmaceutical industry, with all those caveats, certainly a person could make use of um, a a drug or um, a vaccine in this case that has been developed through the use of an abortion-derived cell line. So that's the, the simple answer is generally we shouldn't use these kinds of products if they've been developed in this way with an abortion-derived cell line. But if there's a sufficiently serious reason, uh, it's permitted. It's acceptable. If there are no alternatives and if, as you said, we make our objection known in some way. Correct. Yes. A series of caveats and conditions to it, but that's the long story short. Yeah. So I'm aware that uh, last month in November, the World Health Organization approved, uh, I think, an Indian-developed vaccine, Covaxin, with no yes. connection to these cell lines, which is really encouraging. Love would would love for the FDA to approve it in the United States, but so this teaching that you've just recapped for us, how does that play out with regard to what is available in the United States right now? We're talking Moderna, Pfizer, and J and J, Johnson and Johnson. Sure. So basically, the current um, three vaccines that are available in the United States 
Um, all of them have in one way or another um, used an abortion derived cell line as part of their uh, development uh, manufacture or testing. So um, we can make some distinctions here, some terminological distinctions, but basically the idea is that uh, in order to get this drug and to confirm that it works the way that we think it works, this vaccine, I should say, um, at some point along the road, each of these existing vaccines, available vaccines in the United States, used uh, some abortion-derived cell line. Now, there's a distinction between uh, in what way was the cell line used and which cell line was used. So, for example, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine um, utilized the PERC6 cell line, um, which was actually uh, created in 1995. It was uh, derived from uh, a retina that was um, taken from a, an aborted child in 1985, I think, or 86. And then the cell line was later derived in 95. But um, so so they actually used this abortion derived cell line, PERC6, um, to essentially uh, grow the virus, the viral particles or the the pathogen, that the antigen that then is going to be injected into the person who receives the yeah. vaccine. It's being grown or produced in an abortion derived cell line, PERC6. Um, so we would so in other words, that's actually part of the ongoing manufacture. It was used in the development process, as well as now it's going to be continually used in order to manufacture that vaccine on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Whereas Pfizer and Moderna are uh, mRNA vaccines, uh, which are a cell-free technology or cell-free vaccine. So basically they don't need a cell line in which to grow that antigen. Yeah. Um, and so you're just being injected directly with the mRNA when you receive one of those vaccines, which will then go into your cells and your own cells will actually produce the antigen to which your body will then respond or learn um, that this is this is something bad, this is something foreign. Yeah. Um, and so in that case, they didn't need to use it for the manufacturing. They didn't use it as part of the, um, the development and design in the strict sense. But when all was said and done, they had a product in hand and they produced it and they said, all right, now we wanna see if this works the way that we think it works, if it's stable the way we hope it should be. And they did that testing in HEK293, which is um, an abortion-derived cell line. From a, so a, there's a distinction yeah. you know, between the, the, the level of involvement because the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are not using the cell line in an ongoing way to manufacture yeah. it regularly. Yeah. They did some confirmatory testing to say, hey, yes, this product works the way that we think it's supposed to work. Yeah. And we use some human cell lines to do that, whereas uh, Johnson & Johnson is manufacturing them in an ongoing way with that uh, abortion-derived cell line. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a great explanation. And I think it's morally significant, correct me if I'm wrong, but I my understanding is that's morally significant because in the moral analysis that you've described, there can be degrees of remoteness. Is that true? And so that yes. uh, J&J, the degree of remoteness is, is lesser than uh, Moderna and Pfizer. It's a greater degree of remoteness, which maybe there's not a, a straight line, you know, conclusion that we can draw from that because there are a lot of factors that maybe we could talk about that a person, you know, is bringing to bear on their, you know, their, a decision, which is maybe, that's a good point, uh, maybe for us to just transition into, into duty. You know, that's been a question I think a lot of people have had is, um, you know, just about moral, moral duty. Um, can we say that there's a universal moral duty, universal moral duty to vaccinate? No, we cannot say that. Uh, explain that a little bit because I, you know, sometimes I think that 
there's some nuance here that gets lost in the public discourse where we try, try and put things in sound bites or they just get shortened and we lose the complexity that is there. Yeah, sure. So basically, the notion of a universal obligation suggests that it's applicable always and everywhere to every circumstance. Um, and that is simply not the case. It's actually not the case for any positive um, moral duty, unless they're very general positive moral duties, um, because the specific actions or specific circumstances in which you're called to do something yeah. um, are always going to be limited by what you're able to do first and foremost, uh, physically or, or otherwise, um, and also will be affected by a whole host of other practical considerations in your particular circumstance. So there's a general call, for example, to preserve life and health yeah. or a general call, you know, a general duty to uh, give God his due worship for example, yep. but the exact specific ways and actions by which and when you do that will vary. Um, and so in that sense, to say that there's a universal moral duty to vaccinate, that's a very specific concrete action to choose to uh, receive a vaccination. And it includes a whole host of unknowns, like, for example, well, which vaccine? against which illness and what is the illness? How severe is it? How grave is it? Um, how at risk am I personally? Uh, what's the transmissibility of it? Uh, what are the risks and benefits of that particular vaccine? Is there a difference between this particular vaccine by one manufacturer versus another? Um, so there are a whole host of very concrete, you know, circumstance specific um, prudential considerations that one will need to look at in order to determine, do I specifically in my circumstance have an obligation to do this specific action X, receive a vaccine? And this is not something unique to vaccines. This is something generally applicable to all medical interventions where we say, hey, you know, do I have a duty to um, have this surgery that the doctor says would help me? Um, do I have a duty to take this drug, which is going to be, you know, I have to take it twice a day, uh, every day for the rest of my life? You know, um, do I have a duty to stay on a ventilator, et cetera, et cetera. And these are questions about the proportionality of the medical intervention that each individual has to assess in their unique circumstances. So while we might say something general like, yeah, I mean, the, the church is happy with ventilators. We think that's a great thing. You know, the church says this can help people. Great. But that doesn't mean that in my specific case, I'm always going to need a ventilator or that it's even the right thing for me to choose or agree to depending on all of the, the details of my medical circumstance and not just medical facts, but also considerations um, about um, the holistic good of the person, including the spiritual well-being, emotional and psychological aspects uh, of the well-being of the person. So uh, so it's a more complex picture. <laughs> yeah. So it, and it seems to me that the virtue that is really needed to kind of cut through all this stuff, you know, the, with all these complex factors and decision points, is just the virtue of prudence. Is that, is that a fair? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally so, fair. Yeah. So, so, you know, kind of turning to uh, this question of mandates, which have really been um, at the fore, I think probably since, oh, you know, maybe July or so, maybe even, maybe even June, the president in June said he was, you know, he wanted 70% of Americans vaccinated by July 4th. And we started having these public conversations, about, you know, how are we going to get there? So ma mandates, so-called mandates, they can take the form of, you know, maybe, the federal government telling federal contractors and military or or hospitals that are receiving Medicare, Medicaid dollars. It could be in some cities that we're seeing uh, what they call vaccine passports. If you want to you know, partake in a public accommodation of some sort, like a restaurant, um, you, you, you need to show uh, um, some sort of certification. Or it could be a, a private employer, a, a private organization 
making it to be a condition of employment for an employee. You know, um, John, can you help us just understand what Catholic teaching might bring to bear on on these sorts of questions, on on mandates, broadly speaking? Yeah, happy to. So, I mean, the, the first thing to understand is that the church doesn't have an explicit or direct uh, teaching about any of these specific questions about mandates for specific situations for particular vaccines, whether they should or shouldn't be done or whether they're acceptable or not. Um, the church's teaching is, in this case, if we're going to arrive at some kind of assessment about how Catholic church teaching applies, we have to consider broader principles um, in other areas, like, well, what does the church teach about, for example, the relationship of uh, the uh, legislation and of government uh, to the moral rights and duties of citizens. Uh, what is it considered to be um, the the place for just and unjust laws and how to respond to these? What does it consider uh, the common good to be? What does it consider individual uh, good to be or the fulfillment of the individual to be? So there are a variety of um, factors here that can shed light on this in terms of how would the church think about or how would we as Catholics trying to follow church teaching, um, how would we think about the question of mandates? Uh, and so I, I would say the, the biggest question is uh, going to be to what extent do the mandates serve the common good, especially mm. when we're talking about these mandates are generally coming from, I mean, you mentioned private employers, it could be the state, could be the um, federal government. But in any case, you have someone who's in authority, essentially, um, and responsible for those under that authority, the citizens or the employees, and saying, I, I want to do something that is going to serve the well-being of these individuals, that's going to protect us as a group, as a community. Um, and, and that can be the only, let's say, a reasonable logic under which um, the church might say, hey, yeah, that makes sense. You are concerned rightly with what you're charged with, which is the welfare of the people under your charge, under your care. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's where the notion of mandate is, is basically coming from, is the idea that, hey, we, you know, maybe the state or the employer thinks that this is going to be something good for the group we want to serve. And we think it's so good and so important that we're going to make it a requirement. We're going to make it a rule or a law that you have to follow under some punishment or penalty if you don't. Um, and uh, now, again, the church hasn't explicitly said, oh, you know, that can or can't be done with respect to vaccines. But certainly there are precedents for um, rules laws, regulations that do try to um, serve the public health good of a given community, um, and that falls within the rightful scope of those uh, of the employer or within um, the government. The question will become, is that actually an appropriate means that respects the dignity of all of the individuals involved in that circumstance, as well as effectively serves the full common good. Because yeah. one of the biggest risks that you face when you say, should I mandate a vaccine or any medical intervention? One of the biggest dangers is um, we're gonna effectively start forcing people to or coercing people to accept medical interventions that, that are risks to them and that, um, that may or may not bring the benefits we hope to each person who accepts it. Um, and now we're, we're getting into this situation where we may be looking at the common good, 
which is a, a rightful consideration, under a lens of a utilitarian, we want to get the best overall percentage outcome for this particular group. In other words, we start saying, hey, if if everybody gets the vaccine, you know, let's just assume for the sake of argument that this means, you know, 90 percent of people will be protected from the virus in question. OK, um, but, you know, maybe we we know there's a risk here that some people might die when they get the vaccine. Some people might have a serious adverse reaction to this vaccine. And, and we as the one mandating it, say, well, but I think it's worth it because we're going to have 90% of people be fine and we're only going to lose maybe 5%. So in my calculus, as the person looking at this situation from above, I say, hey, I'd, I'd rather you know make sure 90% are fine and I'm fine with losing 5%. But that's a utilitarian mindset yeah. that doesn't respect the individual decision-making um, um, role of the person. So, so that's one of the big dangers. Well, I just and, wanted to, and this individual decision-making role of the person, um, kind of this individual moral agency, I think, is kind of bound up in this Catholic medical ethical principle of informed consent. Um, could you maybe say a little bit, or Cameo, feel free to jump in too, just about how this uh, ethical principle of informed consent might interrelate with um, a civil authority's obligation to pursue the common good. Yeah, I was going to jump in, <clears throat> excuse me, just going back to the common good. I think the Catholic Church does a, a great job defining it well and each piece of it. So if we look in the catechism, you know, the common good is a, a harmony or a balance between individual rights and the good of society. So it doesn't, you know, like you were saying, just throw out the individual rights of that poor 5% that might be adversely affected, but it considers those individual rights and then tries to um, balance them with the good. And it's a proper authority that gets to do that. So that when we look at our law and the structure of our interplay of state and federal authority, it really tries to accomplish the common good, according to church teaching. You know, so when we were talking about mandates, what authority can step in and mandate? Is it the federal government? Is it the employer? Is it the state and then going to the informed consent question that you just asked, I just want to read that from our South Dakota state law, because I think it gives a great um, view of what informed consent should be. It's consent that's voluntarily, knowingly, and competently given without any element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, threat, or other form of coercion after conscientious explanation of all information that a reasonable person would consider significant to the decision in a manner reasonably comprehensible to general lay understanding. So uh, that's a mouthful, but the key pieces I think are that it's a reasonable person standard. What does that reasonable person need to know in order to make this decision voluntarily and without any coercion? So coercion sometimes may be the loss of a job. Um, you know, where does that coercion come from? Um, so when we start talking about mandates, I think first, importantly, identifying, is this a proper authority mandating? And then secondly, is that proper authority allowing space for the informed consent of this decision? And yeah. that may be the crux of, of the whole issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's John, did you have anything to add there? 
Yeah, I just would piggyback on that to emphasize that within church teaching, I'm really appreciative of the citation of the the law there, uh, Cameo. Um, but in Catholic church teaching, so we have the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services from Numbers uh, Directives 26 to 28, in particular, talk about informed consent. And one of the the words that we often forget or leave out when we talk about informed consent is free and informed consent, which is the terminology that's used uh, in those directives. So not only does it have to be informed that we need to know, you know, what we're what we're getting into, uh, what's the proposed treatment, what are the alternatives, um, and what happens if I don't do it, and, you know, all those sorts of important questions about risk and benefits, but also, um, is it free? Uh, In in other words, that it's free of a significant, um, you know, coercion or duress or anything else that might be unduly um, impacting me. And I think that it's a very, very serious problem and a very thin line um, that you're treading when you start to get into whether and to what extent a government can mandate a medical intervention like a vaccination. Yeah. And just to add add in there too, um, the the bishops of South Dakota through the South Dakota Catholic Conference published a couple of statements on vaccines, most recently last August 10th, and they did cite to the ethical and religious directives when they're talking about informed consent, and they they offered a concise definition of what free consent would be. And so I'm going to link to uh, those statements in our show notes and and also link to some of the, the really great National Catholic Bioethics Center materials for those that want to just dig in and learn a little more. You know, as we talk about... This, it, it, let's just be honest. It's kind of, it can be, um, you know, bring the passions out, bring things to the surface, some emotions. It can be difficult to talk about mandates and exemptions, especially for somebody who is under a mandate and is not giving their, their freedom and informed consent. Um, one of the things that comes up in, in discussion is, okay, is there an exemption? You know, and we, we very often see that in employer policies, just as a result of, um, Title Seven, just to name one example. Um, Cameo, can you just give us a an overview of like what these exemptions, you know, might look like, and um, you know what they mean for people that that would maybe want to try and claim one of them? Yeah, good question. Um, mostly, an exemption for a religious reason is based on the First Amendment of our U.S. Constitution, so that applies to every state. And every, all federal government, you know, whether it's Title VII, Title IX, um, or whatever department is maybe issuing some sort of, of mandate. Um, so under, you know, going way back through the history of our country, we've had these religious freedom challenges. Um, so with vaccines, we started in like 1906. And, you know, does the state have, is it the proper authority to require vaccines from school children. And and the state does have a police power that could mandate these vaccines for whatever illness might be um, currently threatening. But that police power was restricted. And one of the major restrictions was a religious freedom. Um, So, you know, whether it was vaccines under the police power or even into a lot of other you know, fun things like smoking peyote or, um, you know, different different issues that have come to our Supreme Court. A religious exemption requires a super minimal threshold of, is this a sincere religious belief of the individual? And if so, they may be exempt from the law for religious reasons. Because of, of the, I mean, 
woven into the thread of our country is religious freedom and the First Amendment. Yeah, so, and even, you know, just looking at, like, Catholic teaching, Dignitatis Humanae comes to mind. It's the the Vatican uh, Council II's document on religious freedom. It sort of gives, assigns a limit to this principle of just public order, I think is the phrase. Is there something similar like that kind of baked into U.S. law as a sort of a limiting principle? So it's not, you know, anything. Where where does it, where does it stop? Yeah, so— I don't think currently, unless it's really recent, there's a definition of religion, um, but there is, it's kind of been left up to the individual. So the, you know, the court has over and over again said it, it's not our responsibility to address the veracity of someone's religious belief. So there have been things like concerns for health that have met, not met that sincere religious belief test. Um, there have been, um, you know, certain other, for example, um, if the government has a law that's generally applicable, then maybe that could infringe on religion, but there hasn't been a targeted effort by the law to define religion. There have been some things where they say clearly, obviously not religious, um, but there's there's not a clear definition of religion. So we start to see, we start to see that definition sort of bubble to the surface in things like moral, ethical, um, conscience. So I I think we could throw that into a, you know, a bucket when we're trying to define, but we don't have clear guidance. John, does the National Catholic Bioethics Center have a position on specifically religious exemptions and the COVID vaccinations that are currently available in the United States? Yes. So we put out a statement on uh, COVID-19 vaccine mandates um, that goes back to July of 2021. Um, And even before then, we had made mention of the notion of mandates all the way back in December of 2020, uh, right when the the first vaccines were uh, about to be authorized for emergency use. And in both of those documents, we basically state, first of all, that um, that they should not be mandated without any without clear exemptions uh, for medical religious and conscience reasons. So uh, so the center certainly would uh, support the notion of uh, religious exemptions for COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, in fact, we also put together uh, back around that same time frame of July 2021, um, a vaccine exemption resource and a vaccine exemption template um, to articulate Catholic Church teachings, um, in particular with regard to everything we've been discussing, the voluntary nature of medical interventions, proportionality of treatment, the abortion-derived cell line, and the general obligation to avoid it, and so forth, uh, where we basically, to, to assist people with formulating and understanding the principle of religious spacious basis on which a Catholic might come to the conclusion in their individual conscience um, that this is something that they may um, feel compelled to decline um, and that 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 can be an appropriate conscience judgment for a Catholic to make, which would be fully in accord with and flowing from even um, the church's teachings uh, in this area. So, so Cameo, kind of just returning to, um, to this question of exemptions, I know it, this was sort of like spookily anticipatory but you had authored this really scholarly article before COVID um, that ended up being published in the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. Um, when was it? Fall 2020? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, but it was, you know, it was in the works long before COVID. Can can you just share with us what are some of your key takeaways from state laws and some of the court decisions that are out there when it comes to um, vaccine exemptions and what the government really can be digging into and the decisions that it can lawfully be making? Yeah, so the key takeaway, I think, would be first to make a distinction. Um, you know, there's there's law that addresses employees and then there's law that addresses students and the law that addresses students is is less developed. So if we look at the law that addresses, you know, what an employer can require of their employee and then what an employee could claim as a religious exemption, that's where we get a lot of that guidance about sincere religious belief is the minimal threshold that they can look for. The employers do have then um, an alternative. They have to not assess the religiousness of the exemption that's being claimed, but they could say, well, this really you know, provides an undue burden. And then just noting that if there is an undue burden to the employer to um, accept a religious exemption, they they can't under that law just say, you know, this is unduly burdensome. They have to address each individual um, in their circumstances and each possibility of, okay, if I, if I'm claiming a religious exemption and maybe I work in healthcare, is there a place where I could work where I'm not patient facing? Is there a place where I could, um, you know, possibly wear a mask when I'm dealing with elderly people or, you know, so we have to consider every possibility of alternatives and address why each alternative is unduly burdensome. So that, that really puts the, the onus back on the employer to identify why they're saying it's unduly burdensome. So, and those would be in, in the category of what we might call accommodations. Correct. Yeah. So going back to this question though, of the government can't, they can ask our, or your employer, they, they can ask, are you sincere, but they're not supposed to be diving into like the veracity. Right. Like, are you reading your own doctrine correctly? It, it, I seem to remember from reading your, your article, a case of a Jewish couple and a rabbi coming in and saying, well, that's not, it's not there. What, what was the outcome in that? Can, right. So that expert testimony from the rabbi was irrelevant because it's the sincere religious belief of the Jewish couple. So even yeah. though they were Jewish, even though an expert who was the rabbi said, this is not according to our tenets of the faith, yeah. um, it, the courts have consistently said, well, we are discriminated against the individual if we only acknowledge the objective tenets of each denomination, or maybe there's someone who's claiming this religious exemption and they're not part of any denomination. So it's really not. um, So that gets into, you know, first I talked about the employees, second, talking about the students. We see that most often when we're talking about student exemptions claimed by parents. Um, You know, if a parent is claiming something that the court uses a term is a step beyond the doctrines or the tenets of the faith, even that is a religious belief, even though it's it's beyond the tenets or sometimes contradictory, like that that Jewish case. Often, a lot of those cases are Catholics. Um, so, you know, there's been times where a Catholic parent claims exactly what you guys talked about before with those um, 
you know, the tissues derived from the aborted fetus, um, you know, those, those tainted materials that are being used to create these uh, therapies and vaccines, there is a, a religious exemption that's valid under our First Amendment to that material, regardless of what denomination that is. Um, courts time and time again have consistently held that as religious. Um, I mean, so, so those two, you know, those two categories, I, I think it's, it's very clear under the law, regardless of whether you're an employee or whether you're a parent claiming for a student that you cannot test the veracity of the religious uh, belief. And, and kind of just as like a big picture, you know, how do we understand this? We don't necessarily want um, the government or other people um, validating what a person's individually, like what their faith is, right? You know, we should be free to, to, to seek God again, within like the limits of just public order, which are, it seems pretty, pretty broad to me, but there's a broad freedom there. John, as we, as we kind of move uh, towards the end of our conversation, I want to return to um, the National Catholic Bioethics Center. I had a really nice document back in September discussing uh, Catholic principles of conscience, charity, and the common good. Can you maybe just share a perspective on how during this stressful and difficult uh, time that COVID has been for, for very, very many of us, um, how maybe some of these principles conscience, charity, the common good have been pitted against one another, but maybe how an authentic view would be to actually um, hold them up together in a way that they cooperate. Absolutely. Uh, great question. Um, I think it's it's pretty clear how they've been pitted against each other in the sense that uh, we're often hearing things like um, uh, vaccination um, is going to be is an act of charity uh, with the suggestion that it's always an act of charity and with the implication that if you don't do it, perhaps uh, you're acting against charity or you're being uncharitable. Um, and that's kind of a, a weaponization of charity that, that can be dangerous. Uh, you have also the, the opposition of the notion that, well, everybody should be helping with to, to serve and protect the common good by getting the vaccine, um, which means that, you know, you just have to, to go get it regardless of what you think um, and what your conscience may be calling you to do. Uh, and so that in that sense, pitting some notion of the common good against the notion of conscience like well and on the other side you have some people saying well we should be able to get to decide whatever we do period end of story and we don't have to think about anybody else um which is in a sense to say well the common good doesn't matter and it's only about what i think and what i want uh and that's also a, a problematic way of uh uh, opposing, you know, setting in opposition, uh, the notion of conscience and the notion of the common good, um, and and using, in a sense, charity again as this um, being being used as a weapon one way or the other. So I think that um, how how do we get beyond that is the right question, and certainly the the idea is we have to get back to a proper understanding of what conscience is and what the common good is, um, and so to start with common good, we have to understand that. In its simplest form, the common good is God. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's actually the simplest definition in Catholic teaching of yes. the common good, God himself. And so we have to remind ourselves that the common good is not simply, 
you know, a, a certain percentage of people who are healthy or protected from a virus, uh, the common good is a, a healthy, vibrant, um, uh, spiritually uh, sound uh, society, uh, groups, uh, communities of people who are in good relationship and in harmony with one another and who are uh, working together toward that common spiritual end of God, yeah. uh, which the Compendium of the Social Doctrine reminds us of, um, that this is the common end of man and that this must always be part of every consideration of the common good, uh, that, that we have this common spiritual end in God himself uh, and that we're working towards that. So things that that actually th this very um, you know creation of an opposition between conscience and common good is itself destructive of the common good. Yes. Uh, anything that introduces unnecessary division, anything that introduces unnecessary attacks upon one another for differences of our assessments um, about medical interventions is also unnecessary division that damages the harmony of society, that damages the spiritual relationships we have with one another, um, that can increase isolation and increase you know, this confrontational um, a spirit, which is contrary to a true charity, uh, where we want to go toward our brothers and sisters, not just in, well, you should get vaccinated, and that's the only way that you can serve the common good, but also how about speaking to one another, engaging one another, supporting one another, vaccinated or unvaccinated, whatever the case is, um, but trying to sustain one another in true Christian charity and support for um, the fact that each individual to respect that human human dignity of the individual, we also have to respect the, the fact that individuals have to give proper free and informed consent um, while we're pursuing this common good and trying to improve public health and everyone shares that goal. Um, the question is, how do we achieve that public health good, which can which involves a lot of other considerations? And most importantly, um, how do we understand that, you know, you have to, if you're going to achieve the true common good, ultimately uh, being God himself and, and union and participation in God, that means living out charity. And that means also um, respecting uh, one another and, and respecting our decisions and not trampling on the consciences of those who in good faith are um, making decisions that, that they have found to be in accord with um, uh, the, the good of their selves, of their families, of their communities, uh, and and whether that's to be vaccinated or not to be vaccinated, um, that's an individual prudential assessment. So in charity, we can respect those prudential judgments. Um, we can make sure that uh, mandates are limited um, and anywhere that they exist, they should have robust exemptions so that there's that truly a free and informed consent is possible when exemptions are robust and easily obtainable by anyone who has uh, a well-formed conscience and has come to a decision against it um, if we need to have the mandates at all, because ideally in many of these situations, we would not need to have um, the mandates to begin with, uh, particularly from very high up governmental authorities. Uh, again, back to the church's principle of subsidiarity in social yeah. teaching, yeah. we would say you want to start with the lowest levels uh, and not and not impose things from the highest levels if that can be avoided because the lowest levels, the family, the local community are best at assessing the good of their local uh, community um, and, and able to achieve those. And the larger government, uh, state, et cetera, should only intervene when it's absolutely necessary to preserve uh, or to support what those local communities are trying to do. Okay, last question. Cameo, any counsel for citizens, for policymakers that are just thinking through these complex questions and are trying to like 
how do we order rightly our body politic here? Any advice? Yeah, the, you know, this topic is bigger than right now. This topic isn't new. It's a topic we've dealt with from the founding of our country till today, and we'll deal with it, you know, 100 years from now. So the decisions that we make today should be generally applicable. If we're going to say that an employer can force a medical treatment, then we're saying an employer can force a medical treatment. And for what purpose? Um, is that something that we want to say? And if so, what guidelines need to be in place? I, you know, it's, it's tough to be in this position with the pandemic and so many people working long hours and mm -hmm. heroically to try to safeguard our health and our safety and so many losses of loved ones. And those are important things to consider. But also as we move forward, what generally applicable policy are we putting in place? And does it respect those important freedoms that have always been a part of who we are as the human person? Very good. Cameo Anders, Dr. John DiCamillo, thank you so much for joining us on Faith and Politics. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. My pleasure. And thank you, as always, dear listeners, for tuning in. We love feedback. You can go to sdcatholicconference.org, click contact us. Let us know what you, what you thought of today's program and let us know what you want to hear next, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, we'd love it if you'd share this podcast with others, especially during the legislative session. Let's get the word out. We're going to be covering bills in the month ahead as the South Dakota Catholic Conference invariably will take positions on bills. So let's get the word out there so we can all be better faithful citizens. Until next time, live well. <laughs>